Uh, Leonce is a, is a friend of mine and a very, very powerful thinker. Also a very large former football player and UFC fighter, so extremely intimidating. <laughs> uh, Ian, my slides aren't coming up over here, so we're going to have to get this phone thing fixed at some point, but you can go ahead and bring up the first one. Let's start here. Uh, I listened to a talk this last week by Soledad O'Brien, and she said this. She said, race is one of the most difficult and uncomfortable and messy, but necessary conversations we can have. It's difficult to advance good ideas about how to move forward in this country when we have such troubled racial history and a strong reluctance to talk about it and confront it. But we're here today because we are brave. And we know that renewal comes about with work, not wishing, and restoration can't be based only on optimism, but actually on reality and honesty. I agree with her. The one disagreement I have with Soledad is I certainly am not brave. Many of you encouraged me last week after the political sermons on the bravery, the, 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 the tenacity to get out there and talk about difficult topics. This one has really had me overwhelmed approaching it, made me very nervous. The racial conversation uh, as a white man is very difficult. There are landmines to be stepped on. There are emotional bruises and wounds that I personally and culturally and societally have not experienced and I am unaware of. Deep pain runs in this conversation and where there is deep hurt, hurt people, hurt people, as the old saying goes. My greatest fear is that this, rather than being a catalyst for healthy conversation, would be a catalyst for controversy, which would just mark our immaturity in the gospel. I doubt that will be the case at Taproot Church, but there's always the possibility. And I can guarantee you, in a broken world, there's always an idiot in the bunch. I'm being totally honest. There's always someone who's going to absolutely refuse to listen carefully and humbly and respond intelligently and those folks, we need to just be aware of, say, God bless you, God be with you, but this probably isn't going to work well for you because we're going to go this direction no matter how much pressure or opposition we face. So why exactly are we, why was I compelled, why were we as elders compelled to talk about theology and race on Sunday mornings? Let me give you a couple of reasons here. First of all, for myself, this has been a personal journey for myself, a personal journey of discovery, of revelations that I was unaware of, and responses in my own personal heart as a human being and as a Christian. For many, many years, I did not want to, or I actually refused to believe that there were systemic, institutionalized racial prejudices within American society. I was raised in an agricultural community in Southern Idaho, predominantly white. I think there might've been one African-American guy and he lived in Boise, two hours away from us. And I swam in an aquarium of Mormon cowboys, dairy farmers, uh, potato farmers, people of that ilk and that persuasion. And I never heard anything egregious in my own experience. I moved to Seattle, South Seattle, where there are in upwards of over 100 different language groups. <laughs> it is the most diverse multi-ethnic place uh, in the United States. A couple years ago, Rainier Valley was one of the most racially diverse zip codes in the United States. 
And I was overwhelmed by the diversity. I began to see color everywhere and cultural nuance everywhere. And I realized I'd been raised in this mono-ethnic situation and I'd been swimming in this aquarium of, of homogeneity, this sameness everywhere I went. And it was just like blinders were being ripped off of my face. And I also happened to marry a Mexican-German girl whose mama is half Mexican and whose grandmother is full-blown Mexican. Her family were immigrants who traveled here. And it was a number of years ago, I went back to Idaho and I was listening to different conversations. And in one of those conversations, we were talking about the high schools in the state of my hometown, Gooding, Idaho. And somebody made the off-cuff remark that would have never struck me as deeply as it did in this moment. All the damn Mexicans are taking over the high school. Now, growing up in that context, I would have been like, oh yeah, there's a lot of Hispanics that are moving in, it's an agricultural community, and, and I wouldn't have thought of it as a racial issue, just blind to it. But with my half Mexican mother-in-law and my Mexican grandmother and, and, and this whole slew of racial awareness coming alive in my heart, it jolted me. It literally jarred me, it literally put me in a, a place where I, I was overwhelmed by the, the sense of, of revolt, this sense of uh, fear almost, a sense of what is wrong with me? Why, why would I not hear that in the first place? And that began this long journey for me personally to discovering where I had blind spots. Not that I was a quote unquote racist, I just was unaware of the cultural aquarium that I swam in. A couple other things for me personally. We're part of Acts 29. We're now proudly part of Acts 29. Uh, when Mark Driscoll was the leader of Acts 29, I will, I will be fully confessed to you that I flew the Acts 29 flag low. Here in Seattle, Mark was such a, a polarizing character that I just didn't want to be associated with some of the unnecessary drama. When Matt Chandler took over, the flag got raised higher. When Steve Timmis became the executive director, it got raised really high. I have the deepest respect for those men. And one of the things that Matt first said was, we're gonna be a racially diverse network, meaning we're not just gonna be a white reform network of church planners. We wanna be a globally diverse network. And he is committed to that. So over the years, since Matt Chandler took over Acts 29, when we go to our big lead pastor's retreat, the worship there, Matt has brought in black gospel bands. I mean, full-blown, swinging off the rafters, Pentecostal black gospel bands in front of 600 white reformed dudes. And it's like the first year, they're going off with trumpets and dancing and singing and hooping and hollering. And you can see all these white dudes with their faces just getting ripped off. They're just like, ugh. <laughs> the next year, committed to this globally diverse network. We're going to put leaders up in front of us. We're going to diversify. We're going to honor different cultures. Same thing, full-blown black gospel band. You can see white guys like trying to dance. It was like, it was like watching mummies. The third year, people were getting into it and now they're shaking around, they're dancing and everybody's kind of got somewhat of a groove and it was hilarious. This last year though, Matt, for the fourth year in a row, put a, a it was actually Crump's band up there. And very diverse, very energetic. And in between the sessions, I began to hear these conversations going on. Man, Matt said that we were going to be globally diverse, that we were going to be a racially diverse network. How come now all we have is a black band, a black gospel band every year? What about the white band? Why? And here's what happened to me. This was interesting. 
in the midst of one of the song sets, there was spoken word and trumpets. It was very intense. And I found myself saying, I'm having a hard time entering into worship. I'm having a hard time engaging. This isn't my, prefer- this isn't my preferred style of worship. I, I like to contemplate and think. I like the music to be smoother, uh, I, I, a little less emotional, so I can really contemplate the theology. And I found myself a little bit frustrated. And all of a sudden, I had this moment where I realized, and this is what it's been like for my African-American brothers in Acts 29 for the existence of the network. Every year they come, and their preferences, disregarded. Their desires, disregarded. Their preachers, not platformed. And for one moment, for a brief, and please don't take offense at this if you're a minority in this room, but for one moment, the minorities in Acts 29 had the, had the privilege, and I didn't. And it, it awoke me. I was like, this, this is what it feels like in small measure? This is what it feels like to have your persuasions, your preferences, your comforts, this is what it feels like to have that ignored over and over and over or suppressed over and over and over or, or outright not honored over and over and over. This is what it feels like. But imagine that, Danny, I said to myself, at a societal level. And I couldn't get my head around it. Third, Matt brought up five African-American pastors. And this was after the shootings there in July. And he asked them at our last global retreat, he said, what's it like to be black in America today? And for the next hour and a half, I listened to five brothers who are not angry, who are not uh, political, who are theologically mature, who are humble men. For the next hour and a half, I listened to five men that I deeply respect, a couple of whom are acquaintances, one of whom may be a friend. And I just found myself listening to their stories saying, wow. This isn't some YouTube clip. This isn't some rant from some stranger that I don't know. These are friends and brothers who think like me, believe like me, and yet their experience in the United States of America as black men is categorically different than my experience has been as a white man. And I found myself realizing I need to respond and I need to listen more carefully. Now, the second reason here in this journey of mine that we're moving into and why I feel like it's a corporate need for us to talk about race and theology is because the shootings, the race relations between cops and between the African-American community and the Hispanic community, we think that this is an issue that, as white people at least, and as I've listened to conversations, we think that this is an issue that has recently popped up and it's only come about because now we have body cams that show us what's happening. It's not true. There is a societally entrenched, systemic racial prejudice that goes clear back to the garden, to Adam and Eve. And it just so happens that God in this season is circumstantially revealing some of the tips of the iceberg of situations, issues that are happening within the society that God created. Second reason why we're talking about theology and race this morning is not personal and it's not societal, it's theological. The whole story of the Bible 
And the goal of the gospel, the end goal of the gospel, is the creation of a unified people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. In 2012, the Wall Street Journal released a new report. 2012 was the first year where more minority babies were born in the United States than Caucasian babies. That means in 2030, the adult voting population will have more quote-unquote minorities in it than majority European Caucasians. By 2042, when those kids are 30 years old, the landscape of American society will have paradigmatically shifted. And I believe it is God opening up the door for multi-ethnic, multicultural, global revival in the United States. It is an open door that we, like Esther, for a time such as this, have been strategically placed in. The God who is writing out the program and the plan of his purposes in this world has positioned us in this key time and space where the idea of a majority race will not exist in the United States. And we need to be thinking forward to that. I've said before, I dream of the day when I have my grandson sitting on my lap or my granddaughter and they're seven or eight years old and they look up at me and they say, Grandpappy, Grandpooba, Dan, whatever they're going to call me. <laughs> I think Grandpooba has a nice ring to it. <laughs> did you really have, back in the early 2000s, Grandpappy, did you really have black churches and white churches and Mexican churches? Weird. <laughs> like, I dream of that day. Not only for my grandson and my granddaughter, but for us. That even in the next 10 years, we at Taproot Church would look back and say, did we really have... Uh, 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 a non-racially diverse church? Like, did it exist here in the South End? Because that's so weird when God by his spirit moves. This is, just so everybody knows who's new to Taproot, something that we've been committed to from the very beginning. Within the first three weeks of living in South Seattle, I realized, oh my goodness, we are going to have to pursue multi-ethnic, multi-diversity within our church community to rightly reflect the kingdom of God. For some of us, we may be asking the question, hey, why do we even need to get involved in this conversation? God, the Holy Spirit's going to do it. You know, really, we don't have a responsibility in this. Let me share with you another story. Guys, we're going to go long today. And I need you to just stick with me through this introductory thoughts, okay? So please just stick with me. But here's a story to highlight why we need to be involved in this. This last summer, I was in Idaho. We spend uh, a week in a condo in Sun Valley, Idaho. And normally, we really enjoy it. But this year, I was walking around, and it's literally a city of multimillionaires, all who have white hair and blue eyes. It's the whitest place I've ever been in my life. We go to the movie theaters, and we're sitting down to watch Jason Bourne. And we note that in the back, there's an older couple, a white older couple, and they're, they're very agitated. And there's a young 20-year-old guy, the guy that sold us our tickets, and he's, he's shaking his head, no. And we can hear him saying, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. And you can hear the, the lady pointing, and my wife kind of taps on me, and she's like, I think they're pointing at us in our row. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what did Joby do? Are we going to get kicked out of the movie theater? <laughs> Instead, you hear this young guy in the back of the movie theater 
say, fine, fine, fine. His manager is now standing next to him. He comes walking up and stops short of our row and goes to the row behind us and begins talking to an older gentleman who looks just like me. Gray beard, brown eyes, dark features, probably in his 60s. I'm often mistaken for being Middle Eastern. I'm actually Portuguese. The young man with shaking hands bends over and he says to this older gentleman who looks just like me, Sir, I'm so sorry about this. I did not want to talk to you about this, but you have a backpack and you're speaking in a Middle Eastern dialect on your phone. This couple in the back is upset and they want us to search your bag before they'll come in and watch the movie. I turned around and said, what? My grandmother, or my mother-in-law, who is an avid uh, social justice type person, turned around and said, what in the beep, beep? (laughs) It wasn't that bad, but it was close. He said, I know this is crazy, to which the man responded to this young man. He said, young man, for your information, I'm speaking in Hebrew. You're all speaking in English and your cops are shooting people. Why don't you search everybody's bag in this movie theater right now? He sulked off, tail between his legs, hands shaking. I put my hand on the man's arm and I said, sir, I am sorry that that just happened to you. I'm with you. We're here with you. Another individual sitting behind him, a younger guy, interesting. It was most of us under 30 that were, or under 40 that were even saying anything, reached forward, put his hand on his shoulder and said, we're so sorry about that. Right before the movie starts, the manager comes in, goes to this man, says to him, sir, there are multiple patrons that have given complaints about your backpack and the language that you're speaking. They're scared. If you don't open up that backpack, we're going to call the cops. To which I turned around and said, don't you dare open that backpack. Fully prepared for the police of Sun Valley to come and arrest a man for not opening up his bag. And my mother-in-law stood up and said, stop the movie. Everybody get your bags out right now. We're all having our bags searched. (laughs) Bia is a fireball, dude. You don't mess with her. (laughs) Things are getting tense. He says, there's no way I'm going to open up my bag. You can feel people fidgeting. There's a silence. The lady is saying she's getting agitated. She says, you shut up. She looks at me and says, you shut up. I'm the manager of this place. I'm like, I'm not going to shut up. You leave him alone. To which some guy on the left stands up and says, y'all shut up. I want to watch the movie. (laughs) Which scared the crap out of the manager. So she leaves. The movie starts and we watch the movie. Now afterwards, here's where this point is made. My kids ask me, Dad, how come only you and Bia helped him? There were 200 people in that theater. And I said, well, you know, as Christians, we're never to exercise violence. Daddy was not about to get in a fist fight with anybody. Daddy was going to stand with that man. And if the cops were going to come, dad was going to stand with him. And we were going to be arrested with him for whatever charges they were going to bring. But we feel compelled by the gospel of Jesus to be involved in standing with those who are being treated unjustly. We feel compelled. We are compelled by the very gospel we believe, to stand arm in arm with another human being, black, white, Mexican, Asian, who is being treated unjustly. 
We have a responsibility compelled by the God who came and took our injustices upon himself. There's no escaping that. And I would propose to you that if you are not compelled by the gospel to stand with those who are being unjustly treated in some measure, you need to return to the gospel and meditate on what Jesus has done for you. We cannot disregard the gospel. We cannot disregard the incarnation of God's strength into the midst of weaknesses. We are compelled by the gospel to come alongside and help those who are being mistreated. The entire thrust of the Bible, you guys, and I want you to hear this clearly for you theologians in the room. I would say 60% of the drive of Paul's epistles, the reason he wrote them was for racial reconciliation. (laughs) He writes the book of Ephesians. He writes the book of Galatians saying Jewish and Gentile believers have to be together. The New Testament is all about the races being reconciled and brought together. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates the text that I read for us at the beginning saying this, God has started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. In the book of Galatians, Paul takes upon himself to stand for those who are being unjustly or unfairly treated, The Jews have come to town, the power people, and Peter and his protege, Barnabas, instead of sitting down and having a meal and befriending the Gentiles who are in the church, as the Jewish power people come, who separated and segregated themselves from the Gentile people, Peter kind of nonchalantly gets up and sneaks away from the Gentile table and sits down at the Jewish table. And Paul, like Bia, like we should be, is compelled by the gospel, and he gets right in Peter's face. And he says to Peter, you are not walking in step with the gospel. If we are not aware of this truth, that a black church identified as a black church, and a white church identified as a white church, and a Mexican church identified as a Mexican church, if we are not aware that that is not in step with the gospel, then we're missing a huge swath of what the New Testament is about. And I, as a white theologian growing up in white, white rural southern Idaho, missed it until I moved to this place, which in God's grace has just ripped the blinders off walking through Costco. <laughs> Finally, the whole thrust of the Bible points us to living the vision of the revelator, John, today, in today's day and age. He says, I looked again, I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes, all races and languages, and they were standing dressed in white robes and waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb. We want to pray and be petitioning God by the Holy Spirit to bring heaven onto earth. Heaven on earth is diverse in the melatonin levels of our skin. And as we're going to talk about here, depending on how much time we have, maybe next week, we're going to talk about how God created us with diversity as an aspect of his beauty 
his amazingness. And so it's something that we have to embrace. Let's get through the second slide, and we may call it a day and pick this back up next week. Let's talk about why is this conversation so difficult? Why, why is this conversation so difficult? As I have been approaching this conversation, the first thing that I wanted to say is I want to give a, uh, a non, let me, let me put it this way for the minorities in the room. I want to give to you a non-white guilt apology for my, for my inability to articulate well. And I hope you're hearing that as an, as an honest, candid attempt to not, uh, I am not wanting to unnecessarily say things or see things or do things in such a way that misses your personal experience or disregards. For my white parishioners in the room this morning or listening online, this is not coming from some far left social agenda. This is driven theologically. And what I want you to hear is these conversations are not a default condemnation of racism over all of us. I think that this conversation gets so emotionally volatile because I would say 99% of the people in this room are like, I don't want to be racist and I don't want to be overly sensitive and I want to help and I'm not racist and yet we're having this talk and the automatic kind of guilt by the talk happening assumption is I'm guilty of racism. What I'm trying to present to us is a catalyst for conversation. But the conversation is difficult on so many different levels. And so if we can get the reasons why this conversation is difficult out in front of us, this week during HG, we can have these points right in front of us and we can realize, oh, I'm reacting this way right now because of this particular thing. And of course, this isn't exhaustive. Classism, poverty, racism, injustice, all of these things go clear back to the Garden of Eden. And we're super complicated here in the United States because built into the very DNA, the very fabric of our material wealth is built on the backs of slaves. That's a provocative statement. I'd never heard it said that way until Thabiti Anawable, this huge reformed juggernaut of theology and wisdom and blackness at our retreat this last year said, I am a patriot of patriots and I'm here to tell you that the United States is built on the back of slaves. I'd never thought of history that way. We're going to talk about that. Let's talk about why this is such a difficult conversation. Three reasons why it's so difficult for us. It is an immense elephant of issues. First of all, it's a historical elephant of issues. Again, Soledad O'Brien, I highly recommend her. Her, her journalism and reporting, she's uh, the daughter of a, uh, I believe her father was black and her mother is white. Uh, very balanced uh, very incisive thinker. But in one of the talks I listened to her give, she said, uh, many people, I think I put it up there for you guys, yeah. Many people of all races like to think of the history of race in America as there was slavery, and that was bad. Then Lincoln freed the slaves. Then Martin Luther King Jr. started the civil rights movement. Then we elected Obama. <laughs> that is a very distilled very sanitary way of thinking about the history of race relations in the United States of America. I want to bring up the historical elephant of race relations in the United States, again, not to persuade you of anything, but to share with you my own personal discoveries. I have read history 
particularly the history of the United States, through the lens of a white American living in rural southern Idaho. I've never really come to grips with the, the vast institutionalization, the vast DNA that was set in place, even in our founding fathers who said, liberty to every man is a God-given right while holding slaves. I never understood the depth of that. But the reason that it's important to think about our historical roots and the reasons it's difficult is because it is so egregious. It is so horrifically unjust. But it's important to think about those things, talk about those things, because whether we realize it or not, those past histories have built into our cultural DNA, our institutions, our framework of thinking, filters and lenses that we are unaware of. Our past does affect our present. Georgetown recognized this here just a couple weeks ago. Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit school, in 1832 sold 272 black slaves. And they did this to ward off financial collapse. So last week, the university announced that it would be granting all descendants of those slaves the same admission rights as any alumni. Now, Georgetown President John DeJoya, he made the announcement saying this, the most appropriate appropriate ways for us to redress the participation of our predecessors in the institution of slavery is to address the manifestations of the legacy of slavery in our time. What Georgetown is doing as an institution is they are vocally standing in a way that many institutions have not, in a way that many of us have never, vocally standing and saying, here is what happened, and we want to make right what was wrong, even though it is generations away. What we don't recognize, or what we sometimes have a hard time understanding, especially if, if, if we're white, especially if we're white, this is what I've been discovering, is that those historical institutions, those historical markers, those historical moments, set in play in American society a, a fabric of, of brokenness and racial segregation and racial, racial disparagement. Let me put it to you this way, guys. Let me illustrate it this way, just so we're thinking clearly here, okay? And why this is so difficult. Uh, about a month ago, my wife and I were watching a German movie called Labyrinth of Lies. Subtitles and everything. How sophisticated is that? <laughs> Labyrinth of Lies uh, was the true story of a group of about three young German lawyers in post-Nazi Germany who, years after the close of the German war, began making these discoveries that former SS agents, men who oversaw the systematic executions of millions of Jewish people in Auschwitz in particular, were serving at high levels in government, serving in high levels in schools, training children. And so these young prosecuting lawyers in Germany in this movie, Labyrinth of Lies, take it upon themselves to begin to expose that these former Nazis had never been brought to justice. And in never being brought to justice, they were seeking to 
to prosecute them. And as they rose up through the ranks and tried to get to these particular SS officers, they ran headlong into this bureaucracy of, of uh, red tape and protection. But what they ran into the most and what the movie documented really well was people didn't want to talk about what the Germans had done to Jews. They wanted to sweep it under the carpet and act like it hadn't existed. And as I watched the movie, I realized the entire German nation had a, a level of almost corporate embarrassment and shame that rather than grabbing hold of it and saying, this was part of us, we did this, they swept it under the carpet. For us, I think that in understanding our history, there is a level where we have to face our own prejudices. We have to face our own inward animal that, that can say sometimes to another human being, you look different than me, therefore I am better than you, I'm more than you. We can't sweep those histories under the carpet because they expose those present day movements in our hearts. Let me drive this in just a little bit further and then we'll move on. Brian Stevenson is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a coalition of lawyers who basically uh, defend juveniles that are being tried as adults and death row inmates. Very interesting character, uh, very, very intelligent. And he tells the story of going to Germany and giving lectures on the death penalty, on capital punishment. And at the end of one of his lectures, a German woman came to him and said to him, you know, Brian, your, your lectures are very disconcerting for us as Germans. We don't have capital punishment in Germany. Now, this isn't to cue off in any of you the argument between capital punishment and non-capital punishment. Just listen to the story, please. We don't have capital punishment in Germany because our history won't allow us to. And she went on to say, our history that we have now faced head on, there is no way with our history that we could systematically execute any human being for any given reason. We have had to find other ways. Now, now Brian Stevenson goes on and he says this. It got me thinking after this woman said this. That in today's current justice system, in the old south, where the bodies of black men who were lynched, burned, and beaten to death, predominantly on death row, you're going to find black African-American men, and statistically speaking, one out of nine of them is innocent. Are we disregarding our history that might speak into a present moment? And he went on to make the point, he went on to say, if one in nine planes crashed this next month, somebody would stand up and say, we need to investigate this more deeply. And yet the United States can watch a predominantly black population go to their deaths, one in nine of them, statistically speaking, being innocent. He capped it off by saying, if the, if the nation state of Germany tomorrow began death row process and it was discovered that 85% of those on death row, though one in nine of them were innocent, but they were Jewish, there would be global outcry. Are we making a correlation here? What I'm trying to catalyze in us is not a conversation about apologizing for something that we in this room didn't do, 
But we in this room have to be aware in our present day that our historical roots have present impact that are happening right now, and we can't just avoid it. We can't just sweep it under the carpet. Number two, we're definitely not going to get through all of these notes. <laughs> Number two, it's an emotional elephant. The conversation that I want catalyzed in this church, in our HGs, over cups of coffee, it is an emotional elephant. And this is why there is pain upon pain upon pain in the race conversation in the United States. Along with this, it is baggage-laden language. And some of the, the terminology, some of the, the news sound bites are either totally accepted as broad-brushed and true or deeply, deeply offensive to where when they are brought into a conversation, the automatic reaction to those terms is to shut down the conversation or it's to react so emotionally and bowl over the other individual who's talking that there is no dialogue. There's only this determined, you will see my way or I'll defend myself emotionally. So terms like white guilt, white fragility, white privilege, Terms like Black Lives Matter, which some interpret as Black Lives Matter more. Some interpret as Black Lives Matter too. Black rage, colorblindness. There is a whole host of catchphrases and statements and definitions that elicit in each person in this room right now a varied emotional response to different people. None of us in this room want to be broad brushed as racist. <laughs> None of us in this room want to be broad-brushed as the angry black man just trying to be heard. None of us in this room want to be broad-brushed as and being accused of, you're just carrying a victim mentality. You need to move on. Now, some, some are. Some of us are carrying a victim mentality and need to take responsibility. Some of us are blind to the privilege that we have. Some of us are guilty of racism. But in these conversations, we have to be aware of the emotional triggers. We have to be balanced. We have to be Bible faithful. We have to be spirit led. We have to be tender and gentle. We have to remember that God gave us two ears and one tongue, which means just by the sheer math of it that we should listen more than we speak. This is a very careful conversation that we want to have in our church. And it's also not, a, not only a careful conversation, it has to be a caring conversation. Not in the cheesy care bear sense of the word either. I mean that we care about each other. Guys, the New Testament teaches, and I've been praying for our church since January 1st. I committed every day I have prayed for Taproot Church out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Lord, may you make our love for one another increase and for all. I've prayed it every day for our church. If we are loving one another, then our conversations in these emotionally volatile contexts can take place in a very healthy and growing way. Thirdly, why is this conversation so hard to have this week as we get into it? Next week, I apologize. Uh, next week, we'll get into the theology of this. But for this morning, it's a complex elephant. What do I mean by that? Everybody in this room, especially if, if you're middle class, upper middle class, white, 
I want you to hear this because this has been a personal discovery for myself. There is no simple answer to the issues of poverty, classism, and racism. There's no simple answers. And in my short amount of reading and trying to study and trying to listen more than trying to fix it, and just listening to the conversations, what I've discovered is that there are many voices out there that will say, this is why this is happening. Uh, uh, an example may be, well, you know, all those black kids and those Hispanic kids, it's gangster rap and then they get caught up in gangs and that's the problem. If we could just get rid of gangster rap. That's novel. I think that there's a part of a massive puzzle in social influences, in fatherless homes, in socioeconomic disparity. I'm going to say this very clearly. Please do not take offense to this. There are obvious issues of in certain pockets and in certain neighborhoods and in certain families, individualized issues of non-responsibility abandoned by the fathers. There are issues of crime. There are issues of poverty. There are racial issues all over. There, there is such a complex interweaving and threading and fabric of influence and history and present tense, past tense. There is all this complex of issues. And I think that we as a church need to step back and say, okay, there's not a one, one size fits all in this situation. There's not a, there's not a particular, uh, one answer to this entire question. We have to look at the swath of things, and I'm going to get to how we do that as we close this morning. Racial prejudice in the human heart is institutional, it's historical, it's in every pocket of our society, it's in every workplace, and it's in every neighborhood. And so we have to recognize that we have this complex of sin and brokenness, idolatry, which we'll talk about next week, and identity, which we'll talk about next week, socioeconomic disparity, privileges that we could never understand, and I'm going to flesh that out more as these conversations go on. It's a complex elephant. And so when you guys are having your talks this week in HG, or, or, or somebody takes you out to coffee, you need to be able to step back from that conversation and, and not give just single-step answers, but recognize that whatever answer or whatever conversation piece you're promoting and giving is part of a massive puzzle. And be humble about that. Be gentle about that. Be tender about that. Why don't we close with this this morning? And next week, we'll get into the theology of racism and the theology of identity. Let's ask ourselves this question. How do you eat this elephant? It is one bite at a time. And here's how we're going to do that. We're going to focus solely on our church. Okay? We can't. Guys, I don't even know how many people are in here this morning. 150, 160 people sitting in here this morning, adults. It's not like you can sit down in your HG this week after eating your potluck dinner and cracking open your beer and say, okay, we're going to solve racial issues in the United States of America. Go. <laughs> you need to sit down. I'd like us to sit down as a church. And this is going to be an ongoing conversation. We will be salting, I pray, 
We will be salting our sermons, salting our ideas, salting our mission with these topics, these conversations over and over and over to prepare us for the next church that will be in this city. I think that to eat the elephant, we take one little bite. And that one little bite is us right here in this room together. Us. What is God asking us to do? How are we listening to each other? How are we interacting with the culture around us in our workplace? And so I know from myself as a pastor, as a leader, as a, as a thought influencer, as a thinker, I get completely overwhelmed thinking about you guys getting into H this week and having these broad conversations around these social and political things that are, they're out there in the nebulous. They exist all around us. It's the aquarium we're swimming in. And we all, I believe, want to see justice. We want to see right. We want to see our cops and the badges of South Seattle honored and protected and respected and saluted. And we want to see our African-American brothers walking with their heads held high, not constantly scared of being pulled over, frisked, cuffed without warrant. Those are real things that are happening in our city now. And so we have to focus in, rather than on all that that's out there, right here in our hearts this week, for HG leaders in this room, I would really ask you, and HG members in this room, that as we have this conversation, it's gonna be scary. This is super scary. But we have to be able to be vulnerable enough with each other to have these conversations in a frank way. Just to give you a precursor to where we're gonna go next week to give us a little more uh, kind of hooks to hang our hats on for next week. Next week, we're gonna talk about racism as a form of idolatry, and we'll talk about uh, white idolatry in the church, particularly in evangelicalism, particularly in reformed churches like ours. We're also gonna talk about minority idolatry. Uh, I've been reading a number of African-American scholars who are actually part of our reform movement, Leon's being one of them. They have amazing uh, things to say to the minority communities as minority leaders about the idolatry, the false idolatries found within minority communities that continue to, to promulgate the divide. Um, we're going to be talking about identity and how we, we identify with Christ, which means we can actually listen to each other carefully. We are going to tackle the issues of white guilt, white fragility, um, and, and white privilege. We want to talk about those things and understand in a context what they are without taking deep offense to those things. The God who made this world came so that we can be one, so that we can be one. This time this morning has not been an introduction for us to start sin sniffing for racism in our church. It's not time for us to start listening to every person around us going, does that smell like racism? It smells like racism. It's not time for us to become overly sensitive it's not time for us to get weird about things. Matt Chandler is doing this in Texas with his church of 13,000. And he had some African-American friends come up and share on the stage. And they've been doing this for about four years. And one of the African-Americans, Matt, said, you know, what can we do to help you? And he said, you know, just because I'm black doesn't mean that 400 of you need to take me to lunch right after church. <laughs> 
There is validity, though, to engaging an intentional relationship, which is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, birds of a feather certainly don't flock together unless it's around the gospel. Remember, guys, we're talking about Taproot Church. If this is your home, this is us. This is us. We're praying for this together. We're doing this together. For those of us that maybe are having realizations like I have, you need to understand, go to the cross of Jesus. Jesus lived without one iota of racism in his heart at all, at all, for you. He did it for you. So you don't need to be insecure in that place of, of being vulnerable, like, oh my gosh, I think I've had this in my heart. For my minority brothers and sisters, th- there has to be a level two of recognizing wh- where is my identity truly rooted? We'll talk about this next week. We want to talk about the dangers of colorblindness in the church, the the really the damage that colorblindness has caused in the Reformed church, in Reformed network churches anyway. We're going to just be tackling all this stuff head on. But what I want to do as we come to communion this morning is put the cross at our center, the gospel at our center, and, and open this up where the blood of Jesus enables us to have humble, caring conversations with each other, talking to each other, loving each other. I, I would pray that you would pray in your HDs that you would just deluge these conversations with prayer. Will, if you'd come on up, we're going to go to communion this morning. And I think what the Spirit would incline us to this morning is just a, a corporate time of uniting in confession of, of prayer over blind spots that maybe we have. With the cross at our center where we're secure, we're safe in that. Um, the cross compels us each to personal responsibility, emotional responsibility, societal responsibility. And so with the cross at our center today, I think I'll just lead us in prayer. We're going to pray together corporately, but praying that God would open up the blind spots that we have, that praying that God would enable us, praying that if there's, any, if there's anything we're doing as a church that unnecessarily inhibits vibrant multi-ethnic growth, that we would turn from that. If there's anything that we can do to multiply and grow and represent our community as a church, that we would do that. But everything with the cross at the center, where there's total forgiveness and acceptance. And we're going to do, you know, sometimes we do weird stuff at Taproot. And so I'll lead you guys into some weird stuff here during communion, okay? Okay. <laughs> What I'd like you to do is come up and get your communion elements. The house is full this morning, and so please, as, uh, during the first song, come and grab your communion elements and hold on to them. Hold on to them, and uh, we will partake together this morning as we pray over each other. So during the first song, come forward, get your communion elements, hold on to them, and then I'll come forward and, and lead us in a, in a corporate prayer. Let's sing. <laughs>